0: Cedar Street, I love you very much. It's the joy of my heart to be with you here this morning. You know, there are some Saturday nights that I lay in bed and I just keep looking at the clock saying, is it Sunday yet? Is it Sunday yet? Is it Sunday yet? And this is one of those weeks, it's a big day in God's house, and I'm excited to be with all of you as we open up God's Word. We're continuing our journey together, and this journey that we're in is the book of Malachi in a sermon series that's entitled, Final Words on First Priorities, Final Words on First Priorities. It's final words because it's the last book of the Old Testament and the last time that God would speak through a prophet to His people for 400 years before the coming of John the Baptist. But it's first priorities because as God addresses His covenant people Israel then, these same priorities He addresses us as His covenant people of the church today. It's amazing as we've read this book the past couple of weeks that the issues that Israel struggled with then, we struggle with as the church today. Humanity has not changed. We still need Jesus. We still need Jesus. So here's kind of what we talked about the last few weeks as we've walked through the book of Malachi. We talked about this book. The the portrait of this book is that the nation of Israel, okay, they were in exile in Babylon, okay, the southern kingdom of Judah. And they come back after 70 years of exile and they spend 100 years rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. But now they've gotten lazy in their worship, And God addresses them and says, Have I not loved you? Have I not chosen you from all the other nations of the world? And yet, you give me your leftovers instead of your very best. We talked about those leftovers are our worthless worship. For the Israelites, it was taking the very worst of their flock for sacrifice instead of the best. And for us, it's the same way that sometimes when we come into church on Sunday morning, we're not giving God our very best. And when we leave the church walls... And go to serve God the rest of the week. We don't give Him our best. We give Him our worst. We become apathetic and indifferent to the things of God. And that half-heartedness not only goes with our worship, but we said last week that it actually trickles into our marriages. A, we marry the wrong people that don't love God the way that they should. And B, the ones that we do marry we're not faithful to. And God, through the prophet Malachi, is addressing Israel. And as God's word is eternal, it also is addressing us today. So as we talk about this this half-heartedness, one of the things that half-heartedness does, it also makes us hypocrites. And that's what we're going to find out today Is the Israelites became hypocrites when it came to wanting God to bring justice. In fact, they wanted God to bring justice on their enemies who committed evil, but they forgot it was they themselves who committed the exact same evil against God. You know, there's something about justice that we cry out for. Okay, the, the title of our message here this morning is The Groundwork of God's Justice. The Groundwork of God's Justice as we, as we look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. And here's the deal. There's something that God has hardwired us as human beings, that we desire justice. And when people do evil against us, we want to see justice served. Have you ever been to the movies and the bad guy gets it in the end and the whole theater starts clapping? That's something that God hardwired us with as human beings. You know, and something as I was praying through this message, I was thinking about some injustice that we as Candler County residents have experienced over the last few years. Something that has rocked this particular church has been scams. All right? Many of you in this room have fallen prey to some type of scam. And there's something that happens when you get taken when money gets taken from you and you fall under that scam that you want to see that person brought to justice for what they've done to you. I thought about this, this one incident that took place uh, here in South Georgia while I was at seminary in North Carolina. I have a dear brother of mine named John. He's a little bit older, so I call him Papa John. And Papa John's always been a great supporter of me and Ashley and our ministry. And uh, one day, a scam a con artist called his uh, telephone, and when he answered, he said, Hi, Papa. And immediately, John thought it was me, and John said, Bo? And he said, Yeah, 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 this is Bo. Is everything okay, Bo? No, no, it's not okay, Papa. I'm stuck in California, and I need several thousand dollars. Well, how do I get that money to you? Well, it's simple, Papa. You just go to the grocery store and buy a Green Dot card. You put the thousand, the couple thousand dollars on there, and then call me back with the numbers on the card, and I'll be able to get the cash. And that's exactly what he did. So then he calls me while I'm in Wake Forest, North Carolina and says, are you in California? I said, no, I'm still at seminary. And he says, "Uh uh-oh. So later on that day, the con artist calls him back looking for more money. And Papa John says these words to him. I know that I've lost these thousands of dollars I'll never get back. I just want to know why. Why did you do this? And the guy said, Sir, I've got a drug problem, and I'll do whatever it takes to fill my habit. And John said, Well, I'll pray for you. But as I pray for you, I'm going to remind you of one thing. A day of reckoning is coming. And he hung up the phone. Now, here's the deal. We can all slap a big amen at the end of that statement and say, Yes, a day of reckoning is coming when we think about scam artists. But we forget about the evil that we commit And that a day of reckoning is coming for us as well. We want justice to be served when it's other people, but we don't want justice to be served when it's us. Here's the two two ways we fail to recognize God's sovereign work in justice. The first is this. We don't think we'll ever get judged for the evil that we commit. There's something in that con artist that he doesn't ever think he's going to get judged. He doesn't ever think that God's paying attention. But here's the second way. We may not think that we'll be judged, but we want others to be immediately judged for the evil that they commit against us. We're hypocrites. God, judge them immediately, but give me all of your grace. Bring judgment on them right now, but give me time to get my life right. We're hypocrites, and that happened through the nation of Israel, and it happens to us today. So I really want us to see the blueprint of God's plan of justice this morning. Because it is a plan where grace comes before judgment. And in the grace, sometimes we think God's never there and He's never going to do anything about our sin. But He will. Grace is what we're offered now, but judgment's coming. And that's what we're going to talk about here this morning. So what's the big idea in one sentence? Here it is. God's grace always lays the groundwork for God's justice so sinners can either repent now or face judgment later. Say it one more time for the note takers. God's grace always lays the groundwork for God's justice, so sinners can either repent now or face judgment later. So, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Malachi. It's easy to find. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew. Again, the book of Malachi. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the pew Bible in front of you. we will be on page 954 in your pew Bible. And if you would stand at this time. Out of the reading of God's holy infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. Again, we're in Malachi. We're at the end of chapter 2, starting in verse 17, and we'll jump into chapter 3, ending with verse 5. Hear God's word to us through the prophet. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? "...by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears?" I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. And We believe you to be a God of justice, and sometimes, Father, your justice is something we just don't understand. It happens in your time and not ours, but you are perfectly just, and you will judge all sin, the sin of the evil that was committed against us, but the sin and the evil that we've committed against you. So we thank you and praise you for the grace that you've extended today. So, Father, as I walk through this passage, as we walk through this passage, would you help us to see it through the lens of grace and truth? grace that you're offering now, the truth that judgment is coming. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen. Just about every week as I preach before we walk through the text, I like to give us a concept to understand to help us better see the text. And the concept I want to talk about right now is the justice of God. What do I mean when I say that? What does it mean to say that God is just? Well, here's an easy way to understand it. To say that God is just means that He is morally perfect in His treatment of His creation. All right, let me say that again. To say that God is just means that He is morally perfect in His treatment of His creation. That means that God not only is perfect, but He's perfect in every way that He treats and interacts with us as His creatures. So God is perfect in everything He does. He he will punish all sin and He will reward all righteousness. All right, the Bible clearly teaches us that, okay? There are so many passages that point to that. Every single sin that has ever been committed must be punished or atoned for, every single one, which is why we need Jesus. But He will also reward righteousness. He will bless those who are committed to His will. But the problem is, in the justice of God, we don't see it immediately the way that we think that we should all right. As far as the judgment goes, as far as punishing sin, we don't see it because God extends an olive branch of grace. And then on the other side, as far as blessing righteousness, we also don't see that either. How many of you, in the, in the midst of honoring God, you turn your life back to God, and it seems like the first few weeks that you go back to church and you're reading the Scriptures and repenting of sin, things actually seem to get worse before they get better. The year after I got saved was one of the worst years of my life. I lost my job, moved back home with my father. I was sitting in his basement sending out resumes, wondering what God was doing with my life. And that was the year that I said, Jesus, you can have it all. It's also the year that I learned that those preachers on television are blowing a lot of hot air because we don't understand God's plan because we don't understand His Word. Sometimes God leads us into the greatest storms of our life because it's a present It's a gift that He gives us to purge us of things that are keeping us from intimacy with Him. It's what God does. But He's good and just. He will punish all sin and He will bless all righteousness. But again, we don't see it. The reason that we don't see it leads us to believe that God is not a God of justice and He's not working. But we need to trust that He does. So I want to look real quickly at three stages in the groundwork of God's justice. Now that we understand that God is just and He must deal with all sin and all righteousness. And as we walk through the text, I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 17 with number one, mockers of God's justice, mockers of God's justice. Here, verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Okay, so he's using the word wearied. God is wearied over his people. Why is he wearied? What is he tired of? He's tired of Israel being hypocritical. Because here's what's happening. Again, the nation of Israel, the the southern tribe of Judah, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they were in exile and punishment for 70 years in Babylon. And when they came back, they came back to a broken city of Jerusalem. And it took them a century to rebuild everything. But when they rebuilt it, they were still being persecuted by their enemy neighbors. And so they're crying out and they're saying, when are you going to put an end to all this? Where's the Messiah? When's all this going to take place? When are we going to be the nation that we always dreamed of being? When are you going to bring justice to all of this sin that's been done against us? And God says, um, excuse me. You want me to offer grace to you, but you don't want me to offer grace to anybody else. Who do you think you are calling for me to be just to them when I've been so graceful to you? And and this is how they violate God's nature. I mean, they really, when they question Him, it's such an insult. They question His personhood, and they question His plan, and they question His presence and His power. First, let me talk about His personhood. When they say to Him, well, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. He's, they're basically saying, we worship a God who actually delights in sin. He's not just. He celebrates what is bad, and he forgets what is good. But it's the Israelites who forgot how good God is. They completely forgot. And then they question his personhood to say that evil is good and he delights in him, but they also question his plan. They cast doubt that he will ever reward good or condemn evil. They question it, even though all over the Word of God it clearly states that God is going to be just in every situation. I'll give you a few examples. Proverbs 15 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. All right, this means God sees all evil deeds, and he sees all good deeds. Proverbs twelve two says, A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. Again, God will reward all good deeds and he will condemn all evil deeds because he's perfect. Now, this is a key one. Another prophet that came along before Malachi was Ezekiel. And in chapter 18, verse 23, here's what he says. God says through the prophet, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Not rather that they would turn from their way and live. Why does God not execute justice? Because he's gracious and he's giving them chances to repent. And then 2 Peter 3.9, of course, this comes well after Malachi in the New Testament. But the Apostle Peter tells us this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We ask the same question, all right? We ask the same question that Israel does when we turn on the news and we see mass murderers. We see Al-Qaeda All right, and and the victories that they're having and the terroristic attacks that are taking place. We want to see justice served, and sometimes we watch these things and we say, where is God? When's He going to put an end to this? When's Jesus coming back? And the reason why we need to take a deep breath and we need to trust in God being just, even when we don't know He's there, is this. He's full of grace, and He's giving us one last chance to repent. He really is. Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, He's going to make all things new. And when He comes back, the invitation for grace will have expired. And the time for judgment will have come. And before you say amen, look at your own life. Would you want Jesus to come back right now with the things that you're saying and doing from Monday through Sunday? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? I don't know how many of us could say that we are. We need to remember God's grace in our life so that we're ready for Him to extend that grace to other people. Think about, all right, let's make it more personal, okay? And I'm not asking you to say this out loud, okay? But I want you in your mind to think about the person that you struggle with most in your life, the person that has hurt you the deepest. And think about your desire for God to do something about it. And then when, when you think about the fact that maybe He hasn't brought that person to justice, maybe He hasn't taken that wrong and make it right, Stop and think for a second. Have you ever done something that that grieves God the way that that person grieves you? Because God is holy and we're made in His image and it grieves Him when we live in sin and we misrepresent Him. God don't do evil, okay? He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't play games. And we misrepresent Him and so when we call out for God to bring justice and we, we say, where are you, God? Where's the God of justice? He's not even here. God's saying, I am here. But I'm doing for your, for your enemy the same thing I'm doing for you. I'm offering grace. Justice is coming, but grace is being offered. So, again, number one, we need to be careful for being mockers of God's justice. Let's look at number two, messengers of God's justice. As we look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, hear God's word again. Now, this gets a little confusing, but I'm, I'm going to work it out so it'll make sense. Okay? It says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the day of old, as in former years. Let me say this about Hebrew prophecy before we walk through the text. One of the reasons why when we read the Old Testament it can be confusing is because as Americans we think linear, and and sometimes the Bible's not linear. So whenever you watch a news report, it's A, then B, then C. This person did this, then they did that, then they did this, and here's what happened. Well, sometimes the Bible lays out a story in non-chronological order, okay? So sometimes there are things that are happening now, there are things that will happen years from now, and there are things that will happen centuries from now, all in one statement. And that's what's happening here. There's elements of this prophecy that are going to take place immediately upon the return of Christ and upon the second coming of Christ. But I'm going to walk through this verse by verse so that we understand it and we're prepared ourselves as people of God for the return of Jesus Christ. First, in verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. I believe this is a prophecy of John the Baptist. Okay, as I study the scriptures, there's a lot of verses that point to this, okay? One of them is um, Matthew chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, that says this What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this prophecy is where the Lord is speaking to the nation of Israel and he's saying the Lord's coming. But before he does, he's sending a messenger before him to prepare the way. Perhaps if you read any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that there is in fact a prophet who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. This is a prophecy that also in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. All right, basically, why is it that a prophet has to go before Jesus comes? He's preparing a way. I think of an illustration as a highway. He's paid, I wish Larry Sykes was here this morning. He paves a highway that Jesus can travel down and move right into the heart of a sinner. All right, The prophet proclaims truth. And their eyes and hearts begin to be prepared for when Jesus comes and He proclaims that truth, and He is that truth in human flesh. Their eyes will be open, and they're ready to receive it. That's what the prophets called to do. That's the messenger. But there's a second messenger, mes- mes- second messenger mentioned in this passage. Say that five times. And that at the end of verse one is the messenger of the covenant, and I believe that is Jesus Christ Himself. I believe that's Jesus Christ himself. And why? Because Jesus, in fact, was a messenger who told the people a new covenant was coming. When did he do it? Dun, 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 the Lord's Supper. When they were in the upper room. In a few moments, we're going to take part in the bread and in the cup. And when he took the cup, he, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant which has been shed for you so that sins may be forgiven. It's a new covenant. The old covenant, the laws of Moses are fulfilled in Christ. In the shedding of his blood, we have a new covenant, and it's a covenant of faith where we're saved by the finished work of Christ. And he's coming with a new covenant. So this is a prophecy of the Messiah that we're reading here this morning. All right, but here's where it gets a little tricky. There's a twofold fulfillment when we talk about the day of his coming. One is the first coming of Jesus, and one is the second coming of Jesus. And then when they talk about Jesus coming, they mention these examples, a refiner or silversmith's fire and a fuller or launderer's soap. So let me talk about the first one, the refiner's fire. All right, think about the process of metals being purified through a smeltering fire. That's what Jesus Christ does when He comes. Because when He comes and He eventually ascends to the Father and sends down His Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes like fire. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, He sanctifies and cleanses and changes His believers that we become more like Him. That process started at Pentecost, and it's continuing right now in the heart and the life of a believer. Another one is the fuller soap. Just think of bleach. Whenever you're bleaching your whites and you want them to be white and radiant and clean, again, that's the work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that's taking place after His first coming. If you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, here's how you know you're a believer. You should be changing. You should be growing. The things that you used to love, now you begin to hate if they are things against the nature of God. He begins to change your spiritual taste buds, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, the way that you do things is just different than the rest of the world. And why? Because Jesus through the Holy Spirit is like a refiner's fire and He's like a, a launderer's soap. He's cleansing us and purging us and making us new. And it says that he will, we will be purified in worship and worship in righteousness forever. This is what He will do when At the end, in His second coming, we will be made new. We'll get a new body. We'll live on a new earth. All things will be perfect and without sin. No more death, no more disease, no more separation. And can I say, with praise be to God, no more sin buried in the depth of my heart that surprises me. I can't speak for everybody in this room, but I can say this. My sin constantly surprises me. When I get into an argument... Or I get frustrated and my pride just rises to the surface like pond scum. You know, it, it, I just, it scares me to know how much is still down there. I can't wait for the day that Jesus, through His Holy Spirit, makes the purging of that sin complete. and gives me a new body where I'm no longer even capable of thinking a sinful thought that I would not be embarrassed that you would know every thought I had in the span of 24 hours where right now, again, no one in this room would willfully tell us what they were thinking for 24 straight hours. I can't wait for that day, but that's what he's doing now to his people. He's purging us. He's cleansing us. He's making us new. That is the messengers of God's justice. He came once, and He's coming again. But now we're going to talk about exactly what He's going to do when He comes again as we look at number three, measures of God's justice. Listen to verse 5. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The first coming of Jesus was an act of grace. And those who put their faith in Him through grace received the Holy Spirit and He's refining and cleansing them. The second coming of the Lord Jesus is judgment. And Judgment's coming, and here's the problem most of us assume we're part of the first category instead of the second. How do you know? How do you know you're part of the first category that you've received the Lord Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit? Again, I mentioned there's, a, there's, a, there's evidence over the course of your life that you're changing and you're growing, and, and God's beginning to do a work in your life. But here's some more evidence that you don't continue in the type of sin that he's going to judge listed in verse 5. Now let me talk about some of these sins. Sorcerers, okay, there's probably not a whole lot of danger of that taking place, although witchcraft is something that's happening even in Candler County, okay? There's all kinds of spiritual warfare happening in ways that we don't fully understand. So maybe there is somebody in this room right now who's practicing some type of Wicca or witchcraft, and I will tell you right now, you must repent, because you will face Jesus Christ and he's not coming as a suffering servant. He's coming on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and he's going to slay nations who've disregarded his will. Repent. But now we're getting down now we're going to get down at somebody's Kool-Aid, all right? Adulterers. Okay? Those who are unfaithful to the covenant spouse that they're married to. Now here's the deal, it's not that God can't forgive sin because he does. But when it talks about adulterers, it talks about people who make a habit of these type of things because it's who they are. All right, They're adulterers because that's what they do because they don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. It doesn't matter where you go to church. It doesn't matter if you were baptized. It doesn't even matter if you were ordained. If you have a pattern of this type of behavior, you're lost and you need to repent. If you can't be faithful to your spouse, it's because you've never been faithful to God. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit and you'll go to hell if you don't repent. I hope you hear my voice. Repent. If you do repent and receive the Holy Spirit, there is grace and there is restoration. But let's not scoot past the the grace. Let's understand the justice. And what about this? And this hits us even harder. Swearing falsely. If you're a liar, okay? Now, if you're you're to say in this room that you never told a lie in your entire life, then you're lying about lying. All right, Part of our human nature is we've all lied. Every single one of us. But is, is being a liar, is that part of your character? Do people know that you don't tell the truth? That you're not a truth teller? That for whatever reason, lying is something that is commonplace in your life. If that's part of your character, then you don't have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And you'll face judgment at the coming of Christ. And then oppressive leaders... Those who thrust aside the sojourner, who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. If you take advantage of the helpless, if you're in a a position of senior administration or a business owner, and you take advantage of your co-workers, those who are underneath you and you abuse authority, you're going to be judged. And pastors more so than almost any other. I, I am, I am, they, they call the day of the coming of the Lord the great and fearful day or the great and terrible day in some translations. It will be a great and terrible day when Jesus comes. God help me if I ever fall into a place where I oppress those whom he has entrusted to my care because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for all unbelievers. So, Let us not assume that we're part of the first group. Let us not assume that we're the ones that are being cleansed and refined. Let's look at our life and see, are we changing? Are we growing? Has God done that work? But let us also be ready at the coming of the Lord Jesus and say, you know what? Am I guilty of any of these other things that he's going to judge and judge harshly? When you consider your salvation, what do you trust in most? There's a book uh, that has meant a lot to me, and it's meant a lot to Dave. He shared it with me over the years. It's written by our current Southern Baptist Convention president, J.D. Greer. The book is called uh, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, and the subtitle is How to Know for Sure That You're Saved. And basically what he's saying is that when he was a youngster, he kept praying the sinner's prayer over and over and over and over because he didn't know if it stuck, all right, And a lot of us fall prey to that sometimes. We don't understand how salvation works. We think it's a magical formula that we pray this and then pray this and then pray this and then we're saved. That's not how it works. You know how you're saved? You trust Jesus Christ. All right? You realize that you're a sinner and you realize that Jesus Christ had to be perfect where you failed and he had to take on punishment that you deserved and he rose again from the from the dead making a way from death to life and he ascended to the father sending down his holy spirit and he's coming once again to make all things new and you need him for the oxygen that is in your lungs you know that you're saved because you trust Jesus you don't trust a prayer that you prayed when you were 10 and the evangelist signed your bible You don't trust how many VBSs you've served in. You don't trust how many years you've been a church member. Those things are fruits of someone who is saved, but they're also fruits of people who aren't. We should never place our faith in anything other than Jesus himself. Just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. So we have a choice as we think about God's justice. We can fear him reverently, because we love Him as our Father, or we can fear Him under condemnation because we will know Him as our judge. The lack of fear is the problem of all sin. If, you, if someone is sinning, you can always trace the root of it down to a lack of fear in God. So do you have a reverent fear for Him as your Father? Or do you have a condemning fear of Him as your judge? You have the option to choose today. You have the option to turn And the judgment that you deserve will be put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and you will be called his child, adopted into his family, or you will face all the judgment that's coming upon his second coming. So as we've looked at mockers of God's justice and messengers of God's justice and measures of God's justice, let's sum all this up in one sentence. This is what I want us to know. God's grace and justice are both fulfilled in Christ who came once in mercy, but who will return in judgment. For note-takers, I'll say it one more time. God's grace and justice are both fulfilled in Christ, who came once in mercy, but who will return in judgment. So, let me just say this before we enter into a time of communion. Maybe a twofold application of this message is this. Here's the first one. You need to be patient with people who've hurt you, because God is patient with you when you hurt Him. Grace is offered. Judgment's coming. We want judgment for others, but we want grace for ourselves. And God says, if you want grace, you better offer it to somebody else. So for the ones that have hurt you and that you want to see justice happen right now, pray for them. And pray that God would be gracious to them and they would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. And the second is this. If, you are, if you're abusing God's grace and you think you can do whatever you want and God's not paying attention... Judgment's coming. Grace is now. Judgment is soon. If Jesus were to come today and evaluate what you've done the last seven days of your life, would you say, come Lord Jesus? Or would you say, no, give me a little bit more time? Well, we don't know when He's coming. He could come today. He could come before the end of this service. And I do pray that He comes. But if He doesn't, I'm not going to shake my fist up at Him and say, where's the God of justice? God has kept a record of everything, good and bad, right and wrong. And He'll make all things new, and He will judge everything rightly, and I trust Him, and I want you to trust Him as well. If you're living in sin, if there's something in your heart right now that you know is not right, do not leave without confessing, repenting, and turning away from it and being prepared to receive grace while it's still offered because judgment is just around the corner.